Sarah Miller. Welcome to episode number 35 of the podcast here. It's awesome to have you in. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for coming on. I, I will say I emailed you before the episode for some talking points in terms of what you teach in, in Latin because that's not the most familiar topic for me. So if I ask any stupid questions or dumb questions on the podcast here, please uh, you know feel free to educate me. Well, I always tell my students there are no dumb questions in a Latin classroom or a Greek classroom because we can find something that's yeah. definitely not dumb about it. So, <laughs> what what are the classes that you teach here, and maybe what are some of the subject uh, subject matters that you go over in your classes? Mm-hmm. So, I teach Latin and Greek this year. So, I teach Greek beginning Greek Greek one, and then I teach beginning Latin, and then Latin two honors and Latin three honors this year. Uh, so we mostly are language focused as a department. Uh, we do what's in sort of Latin speak, the sort of more traditional grammar translation method in our style of teaching. Um, but the goal is to get our students reading actual Latin eventually or Greek um, that was written by the ancients um, at a certain point um, as soon as we can. So yeah, one of my favorite things, one of my favorite things to do is go to art museums mm-hmm. and I always wish that I took some Latin mm-hmm. growing up. I took Spanish, but if if I knew a little bit of Latin, I could actually make sense of some of the things that I'm seeing in museums. Yeah. I think that's part of the, mm-hmm. you know, usefulness of taking a class like that, right? Yeah, and it's like if you go to Europe and you're just traveling, walking around any European city, you'll stumble across inevitably some sort of inscription. Um, probably in Latin, sometimes in Greek, depending where you are. Um, and it's, it is kind of cool when you're like, oh, I can read that. Or like, um, I know there's pleasure in that. It's like, oh, I can figure it out. So, For sure. Yeah. And you've done a solid amount of travel in Europe, right? Mostly related to classics. So okay. um, like in undergrad, I did short study abroads to um, like we had three week extended studies. I went to Colgate University for undergrad. So we did these three-week extended studies to Rome and then Greece. Um, And then in graduate school, I spent basically a whole school year in Greece um, with the American School of Classical Studies at Athens, which is an overseas research sort of institute for American universities and colleges. And they run this year-long program for graduate students to really dive into the history, the archaeology of Greece, but not just ancient Greece. Basically, we went from like prehistory to modern day Greece. We learned it all and we went everywhere, which was awesome. And you were there for a full year. Basically, school year. So like nine months. Oh, cool. Yeah. And you got to do an archaeological dig over there, right? That's what you, you said? Yeah. It's part of one of the options, like in the spring, like you can, they have these, um, in the spring program after like traveling all around Greece, you have some sort of independent options. You can do these trips that are outside of Greece, but sort of connected to the Greek words, world. So my year, the options were Egypt and uh, Southeast Turkey, Cilicia. Um, so I went on that trip, which was awesome because it was probably places, some places I would never go mm-hmm. uh, by myself. Um, and then you could also choose to work for three weeks at the archaeological dig in ancient Corinth. So I chose that for three weeks and then chose to go to Southeast Turkey as my other option. Why'd you choose the dig? What was so fascinating to you about the archaeological aspect of that trip? So my whole training at that point, I'm what you would call like a philologist. I'm interested in language, literature. Um, That was my whole background in classics in both undergrad and 
graduate school. So I wanted that opportunity to experience an archaeological dig, um, to sort of see sort of my field from a different perspective. And also the whole program that I went for that whole year was great for that because I was exposed to things outside of my because normally I'm, I'm more interested in Latin. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a, more of a Latinist, so it was great to just get the broad exposure of fields that I, weren't at, that I wasn't either as knowledgeable or as comfortable in. Um, so the archaeological dig was, I really wanted to do it because it was probably going to be my only opportunity ever to mm -hmm. go on an archaeological dig. Right. Um, so it was, just, so I chose that. And it was good. And I, I learned like I chose correctly, like maybe archaeology was not for me, but I also learned a ton and I really enjoyed how I really got to experience how we figure out history, how we construct a historical narrative. Because the way we they dig at Corinth at that time was some some digs like you dig as the human. Like today we dug like two inches. This is what we found in the context. Mm -hmm. But here we were forced to write our narrative reports of like in the 13th century A.D. The person in this place dug up post hole. Mm -hmm. um, so we were constructing a narrative as part of our reports. And I really enjoyed that aspect because I could really like I was constructing history um, at that point from based on what we were finding that day. So that that I found really in intriguing and interesting. What kinds of things would you find when you were when you're out there digging? How many people were mm -hmm. in the program with you? So for that like session, so there were I think about six of us graduate students um, and then in ancient Corinth, they, they have an interesting archaeological dig because they have local Greeks, um, local Cor Corinthian residents who, and it's like their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfather have all worked on this archaeological dig since its inception um, mm. in like, I think the early, late 1800s or early 1900s, I forget exactly the time period. Um, so they have this long history tradition of um, the Greeks being sort of the diggers, which is a bit irregular because most archaeological digs you're you're also doing the digging um, so that's just an interesting place where you where I myself was not actually doing the digging there were Greeks but the useful thing for you them because they're so experienced they really know the soil um, and then as soon as the soil changes they know oh we're in a different time period now mm. um, so they could easily tell like because um, the way people live it's not straight levels um, it was depending on if they're building or something happened, like the time frame could change constantly. Was, we were all doing it based on soil, basically. So fascinating. Yeah. Um, anything that you remember that you found, uh, when you were, when you were digging or what, you know, what, what are some of those objects or artifacts that you dug up? Yeah. So we were working in, I think it was a sort of a Frankish period. So that's, um, my dates are probably going to be terrible because um, I haven't thought about this in a while. So Frankish, I'm, I think we probably started around a level around, I don't know, 1300 AD. And please, someone can correct me if this is totally wrong because I'm, I'm misremembering it, I'm sure. Um, and we were hoping to, I remember for my three-week session, we were hoping to get down to the Roman level. Um, we didn't quite make that. Um, but like the things we were finding were mostly what we call small finds. So it was like coins. Um, so those were always interesting because we would find a coin and then we would have to then figure out like what time period is the coin from and things like that um, for dating purposes. You dig up a lot of pot shards and you actually date most of the levels that you're digging in based on those pot shards because the pottery changes over time and they know 
what time period each of the pottery and where the pottery is coming from. So that's how we do a lot of the, they did a lot of the dating. Um, I wasn't fortunate, but the sort of the group next to me, they found a well. Um, so that's always great when you hit a well because wow. you find all sorts of things at the bottom of the well. So they found some beautiful pottery that they were pulling out of it um, and things like that. So we didn't have any major finds during my three-week session, but still it was good experience and it's always exciting because um, you do just mostly you dig up like pot shards, animal bones, things like that. Um, and then more and more we, we can use those animal, bo animal bones and the potsherds to really date and understand what the people were doing at that time and sort of what was the living conditions. So. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, how did you develop such a fascination or an interest mm -hmm. for classics? Where did mm -hmm. all of this originate for you in your academic career? So in sixth grade is when we learned ancient history. Um, oh, yeah, me too. I had a uh, great teacher, Mr. Verano. He was... Yeah, I had uh, Mrs. Schneider. Mrs. Schneider. <laughs> so, so we did like ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. We even did a sixth grade play about like King Tut, which was awesome and fun. Um, so that was like my first exposure really to sort of the ancient world. And then we went to Greece and Rome. Um, and because I couldn't really study hieroglyphics like in school, but going into middle school in seventh grade, I went to public school. So um, at that point, middle school started in seventh grade. I could choose a language and Latin was one of the options. Mm -hmm. um, so I immediately signed up for that because I just loved learning about the ancient world in sixth grade. And I thought this would be my closest way to continue that interest. Um, Do you think it was the subject matter that immediately attracted you or was it that teacher that really played a key role in your fascination with the subject? Probably a little both. A little bit of both maybe, yeah. Because, mm -hmm. um, yeah, she was really, that was also the year like we could, every year we could kind of do this, but we could, she really had a, like a library in her classroom and we were encouraged just to pick books at random to read and there was a bit of sort of goal incentive, like if you read a certain number of books, you would get like certain rewards or something for doing that. So like I also always had enjoyed reading. So like that sort of environment sort of set me up to like really enjoy her and the class, both learning the subject matter, but also just enjoying reading even more. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it probably a bit of both for sure. So you continued to study Latin mm -hmm. through high school. And when you went to Colgate, did you know immediately you wanted to dive mm -hmm. more deeply into the classics? So I had originally, going into my freshman year, or when I was even applying to college, I was like, like, I enjoy Latin, but I would like to do, I was thinking like, you know, like high schoolers have big dreams, like I want to go out in the world and I want to sort of, I don't know, be an important person and mm -hmm. get into business. But when I got my course catalog for, to pick courses going into freshman year, <laughs> We, they have a freshman seminar at Colgate, so you pick sort of, it's basically topic-themed. Um, there's things like um, like the um, cryptology or the advent of the atomic bomb or things like that. And the one that drew me most was like the gods of the poets, which was taught by a classics professor. And it was about um, philosophy and uh, like Homer and literature and sort of how, what was influencing poetry and things like that. So that is what influenced me. And then I, one of my first friends at Colgate, she, she said when she saw that description, she was like, no way. Mm -hmm. So I think that also sort of immediately what I was interested in revealed itself. Um, and then I didn't take Latin my first semester. 
I took French because I was like, I should probably take a modern language at some point. So I took French for my first semester, but then I added Latin back in my spring semester. And then the classics classes were the ones that were most interesting to me at that point. Um, and then it just snowballed from there. So Awesome. Yeah, it's such a unique interest that you had going yeah. into it. And maybe it was the subject matter in sixth grade or, or something else that attracted you to it. But it's cool that you kind of had an idea of what you wanted to do from a really early age, sixth grade. Yeah, well, it's not maybe what I wanted to do, but what I was interested in. Yeah. Because um, I, I was also not even sure if I wanted to continue like with graduate school or whatnot because mm-hmm. um, it's a tough road uh, to sort of going in through graduate school and like trying to earn a PhD. But then like, again, as through college, like I did some internships, but what I most enjoyed was like being at school, being in college. Um, and then also to a certain extent, growing to like teaching and sort of instructing because my senior year I was like an undergraduate TA for like elementary Latin. Um, so that kind of all snowballed over time. What was that experience like as a first time teaching? It was interesting. Well, we were mostly used as graders to a certain extent. So we would grade homeworks and then we would have like tutoring hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes the students would come and it was interesting like suddenly having to explain to someone else uh, what you already know was you suddenly realize oh like you have to really think through like because sometimes when you're good at something you just learn it you don't really know how you do it or um you haven't thought about then how do you explain that to someone else you just kind of understand it so that was sort of my first oh right like you have to really think through how someone learns and they may learn it differently from you so you have to try different approaches so that was my kind of first experience with that yeah you really have to understand your subject matter if you're going to simplify it Mm -hmm. for someone else yeah and I had an earlier experience like um all through high school I was I so I played clarinet um and I was kind of mostly quote-unquote a band geek throughout high school (laughs) um so I I would and at one point I was considering music education Mm -hmm. for college instead of um, going into a more traditional liberal arts college uh, and so I would sometimes tutor younger students, like elementary age students when I was in high school with clarinet. And that was similar, like suddenly, like, I know I'll, I figured it out, but how do you get someone else to figure it out how to produce those sounds and things like that? So I did like that sort of the puzzle aspect, but also the reward when they do get something like that enjoyment that you see the breakthrough on a student is just was quite like thrilling. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's similar to, I think, my path to teaching, too, was doing lacrosse Mm -hmm. lessons with little kids. And I was like, this is pretty fun teaching Mm -hmm. younger kids, you know, what I I like to do. And then you always had the passion for Latin and classics Mm -hmm. with you, too. So it's almost like a combination of those two two things. Yeah, yeah. Um, So let's talk maybe about graduate school for you and what that experience was like and how really you found... Mm -hmm. Gilman and Mm -hmm. and teaching here after that? So I graduated from Colgate and then I immediately went to UVA for graduate school for the classics program uh, for the PhD program Uh, and it was intense. Um, My Greek was not as strong as my Latin and that came out in my graduate level classes Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to really work at that and work at my Latin as well. Um, So graduate school depending where you go it can be a really um, sort of encouraging time, but it also can be stressful because there's tons of requirements, the exams and sort of just just the stress of it all. And there's not a guaranteed job at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was becoming apparent 
Um, cause I think, um, my second year was like 2008 when the economy collapsed. So, um, so that became apparent, but I did enjoy my classes and I, and I was really fortunate that our program, all the graduate students got to along and really helped each other. I found some great friends there cause you would hear horror stories at other graduate programs where each graduate student was out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And they would actually sabotage each other. Um, so I was so thankful to not be in that kind of environment. Um, so like over the years at UVA, like I was so thankful to be in that program because I learned so much. It pushed me to my limits. Um, and I met some wonderful people, like my closest friends and also just some great mentors over the year. But I also got to teach a lot. Um, so UVA, which was kind of maybe different than some other graduate programs, after your first year, starting in your second year, you start TAing or teaching. Um, and sometimes you're a TA where you're like teaching like smaller sections of a larger like beginning Latin course or a Greek mythology course. But you could also have your full home, full course as, a, as the instructor. Um, so getting that experience was just um, wonderful because I was able to teach various levels of Latin. I was able in the summers to teach my own like Greek myth course and my own Roman civilization course. So through that sort of, through those years, I was really able to develop and hone like how I wanted to be as a teacher and my skills. So So when you first were admitted to this program and for the people in your, in your class with you, were most of your goals to become teachers and teach after and enter education Mm -hmm. or what really is the motivator for a lot of the students who apply to a program like this? The number one motivator is you want to become a college professor. Uh, is really, if you're going into a PhD in classics, you want to become mm-hmm. a, a professor. But the reality is that there's very few jobs for professors in almost any humanities field, but also, like, but maybe particularly in classics, but also even now in like the sciences, there's only so many positions at colleges. Mm-hmm. Uh, so over the years, especially in the last five years or five to ten years, maybe there's been a big push in academia about like um, sort of all ac- alternative academics for P- for PhDs, like um, where it's not a terrible thing if you don't end up as a professor, but the, there's other career opportunities out there for you. I mean, that's been a big movement um, within academia to like. Because being a professor cannot be the end-all goal because there's just so many people that will fail. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so what are some of those alternatives? Is maybe in like mm-hmm. high school and independent schools is that um, are, are those programs seeing a lot of their graduates going into those professions too and kind of the secondary school world? Well, it's also interesting because some s- students or people enter, enter these PhD programs they may not actually even enjoy teaching. They don't quite know. What they enjoy is reading Latin and Greek. Mm -hmm. They love research. They love writing about what they're studying and reading. They may not necessarily have thought, well, what about teaching? Mm -hmm. Um, But of course, a college professor, you have to be able to teach um, nowadays to students. And it's not just your research, although depending where you are, so much of your job performance depends on your research. Uh, so there's that was always interesting because you could tell like which students maybe were not in it for the teaching, whereas I learned pretty quickly like actually the teaching was the part I most enjoyed. So it made sense that I would transition mm-hmm. into an independent school world um, where the teaching would be the focus. Also, I'm not personally set up for publish or perish. Um, I'm a very slow writer. 
Um, so I was not going to be able to survive kind of trying to publish things for anyways. So, but it was good that I enjoyed the teaching. So for sure. I mean, it's great that you found that out during your, um, academic experience. What was the subject matter in within classics that most, uh, fascinated you during your, during your time there? So I have always enjoyed um, Latin prose, uh, so not the poetry. Although I enjoy reading Latin poetry, it's not something that sort of really um, enthused me as a research topic. So I made it all the way through my PhD exams. I went to Greece for a year and then I was coming back and then starting my dissertation. Um, So I was planning to work on Cicero, who's the great Roman statesman at the end of the Roman Republic. Um, So we have from him a huge corpus of letters. Um, And it's because of these letters actually that's one of the reasons why we know so much about the late Roman Republic um, because he's such a, those letters have been used as a historical source Um, because they're like, they're partly personal letters, partly written, meant to be read read widely at the same time. So you could learn, we, we have been able to learn a lot from, about Cicero from that time period. What made Cicero such a great statesman or lawyer or orator? He was mm-hmm. one of the greatest speakers ever, right? What, mm-hmm. what, how did he hone that craft, mm-hmm. and what was what were his speeches like? Yeah, so uh, Cicero's about the same age as Julius Caesar. So Cicero's born in like 106 BC, and Caesar's born in 100. So they overlap in time period, and even though it's not spoken much about Caesar is also supposed to be a very good orator. Um, so Cicero is uh, born, he's an, he's an equestrian, so he's not, his family prior to him has not had anyone reach like the consulship in Rome in sort of the highest level of government. So Cicero is considered a sort of a new man. He's the first one in his family to reach the highest office in ancient Rome as the consul. Um, and so oh, he gets his name because he starts... Um, He's able to uh, be elected to each office at the age that he becomes eligible, which is also remarkable. Um, that he, as soon as he hits the hits the age requirement, he gets elected to the office and he climbs the ladder. Um, and then a lot of his speeches are sort of he makes his name in court cases. Uh, so he um, he defends um, the poet Archias is one of the one of them of who is not a Roman citizen, but he's a poet, he's a Greek poet, and he defends him with, uh, with um, citizenship questions. Um, it's sort of one of his speeches. And then the sort of famous speeches are when he's, the year of his consulship are the Catalinarian conspiracy. So Cicero, as consul that year, um, overthrows, a, defeats a coup attempt by uh, Catiline. And so there's a series of four speeches that he gives um, to the Roman Senate and to the Roman people um, where he sort of defends um, the power of the Republic and the Senate and whatnot. Um, so those are some of those famous speeches, but there's many of them. He has a lot, and he is very conscious in getting his speeches published as a way to sort of craft his legacy. Um, he's very conscious of that as, so that's why we have so many things surviving from him, because it's clear he was really thinking about what would his legacy be. And he became very wealthy over the course of his life, right? He was he was wealthy. He was maybe thinking a lot about his legacy and, and leaving his speeches behind. Um, how about the letters, though? Because that's something that I hadn't 
really known much about. Mm-hmm. What what have you found out in all of your studies about Cicero's letters, or what can we find out about him mm-hmm. through those letters? So the letters are interesting because, like, we have, like, from authors, like, correspondences. We always, I think, like, famous authors, I think there's probably Hemingway and things mm-hmm. like that. We learn yep. a lot about them. Cicero's letters, there's always a question. They're, like, similar to that. They're letters that have survived. But also the culture at the time was um, letters would be sent and then read aloud. So they weren't meant necessarily to be just private. Um, They were often written, depending on who you were writing to, with the expectation that the person would read that and then pass it along to his, like, circle of friends or circle of political uh, acquaintances. So these letters... um, they're not just these casual private correspondence. We know that, that some of them are meant to be shared widely. That's uh, that's bizarre. It's like sending a text message today and knowing that your friend's going to read it to all of, you know, the yeah. people he's with. Yeah, exactly. So what I was interested in the letters was looking at, approaching more as sort of literature, like um, looking at patterns of speech or how patterns of argument. So in particular, I was looking at the sort of... Um, motif of an apologia, an apology, meaning not an apology like we think of today, like forgiveness, but an apology as in a defense. Uh, So defending oneself against accusations, Um, sort of how that language was maybe similar or different, or the pattern Cicero used in his letters would be similar or different to how he would defend his actions um, in his speeches. So Kind of like a counter-argument, like he's... Mm -hmm. He's identifying the count, the potential counter-arguments already in his speeches, right? Mm-hmm. That's like a form of um, strong writing, I think, mm-hmm. is like in English we teach to, you know, acknowledge the counterpoints and, you know, button those up before you're attacked, maybe something like that. Yeah, both before and after. Like if you've been accused of something, how do you respond? Um, mm-hmm. What? How do you defend yourself? Um, and sort of... What I didn't get very far um, into my dissertation before I transitioned totally into teaching. But I was looking at his letters of consolation because there's a series of letters where um, cause Cicero's daughter dies in childbirth. And then we have also Cicero's correspondence is great because we also have letters not from Cicero, from other people that mm-hmm. survive. Um, so he gets some consolations back, but a lot of them are... Um, they console him for his daughter, but they also say, like, you need to get out beyond your grief because Cicero famously grieves for his daughter pretty seriously, um, which is maybe not was typical of an expected response in the ancient world from a male um, member, which unfortunately has carried on to modern times to a certain extent. Like, you shouldn't show your grief too much. But Hmm. Cicero famously was very saddened by his daughter's death. So he gets these letters, but they, like, are often like you need to sort of look past your grief. So he writes these responses back where he's defending that um, he should he should be um, he shouldn't be criticized for the way he's. Oh, feeling. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, because we were talking on here on a previous episode about like why what is the stereotype that mm-hmm. men don't cry and mm-hmm. like that how that permeates in our society and our cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, is that a natural thing? Is it, are, we, are we kind of born, like, as males to hide our emotions in mm-hmm. some ways? Or is that something that's determined or, or put onto us by society? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a difficult question, but it's interesting that Cicero was um, 
he like defended himself for something that t- makes total sense. Right. And yeah. there's and it is a bit of societal pressure because even at that time there's this sort of more like stoic philosophy like you should sort of just bear up um, under these um, blows of fortune and he's like um, he needs to process his grief in a different way mm-hmm. and he does this actually through a philosophical work um, it's the Tusculan Disputations which I'm not as familiar about um, or remember as much about but he even goes through a philosophical work discussing grief. Um, and loss so it was a big sort of moment that was weighing on him so Mm. yeah I've looked into um, the stoic philosophers Mm -hmm. of this time period a little bit too Um, there's this guy I don't know if you know Ryan Holiday has kind of become popular and he's written a couple books recently Mm -hmm. Um, but he talks a lot about Marcus Aurelius Mm -hmm. and Epictetus Epictetus uh, the second. The thing, second? Yeah. Um, and then one more that I'm drawing a blank on, but um, the Stoic philosophy, have you have you uh, studied that much? Do you study that much in your classes at all or no? I didn't study as much philosophy. Like I read, like we always read Plato, um, but we were always approaching Plato more um, in my classes through more of a sort of historical and literature perspective, even though... Um, the philosophy is there to talk about, but so I I hadn't really read a lot of like Marcus Aurelius or anything, mm-hmm. but um, mostly the philosophy I read has actually been through Cicero because so much of those sort of earlier philosophical schools, the academics, the Stoics, a lot has been sort of Cicero translating the Greek into uh, the Greek into Latin and, and through his philosophical works, he's a source for a lot of um, the Greek philosophy into. The Latin language. Um, so, like, he comes up with the language for um, talking about these full, full, philosophical schools in Latin. So, gotcha. was mm-hmm. Cicero um, highly regarded and respected during his time, or did he have uh, segments of his mm-hmm. uh, populace who didn't like him so much? Yes. Um, so he he famously saves the Republic. Um, but then he gets exiled for that because it's the end of the Roman Republic and suddenly we have these um, tensions which lead to the civil war between Caesar and Pompey. Cicero is kind of caught up in the middle of that. So he gets exiled for a year because he famously saves the Republic, but he executes the perpetrators without trial. Um, And so when later... um, so the different political factions are sort of stirring up trouble. Cicero's actions immediately come to the forefront. He gets exiled for a year, um, and then he eventually is brought back, which is a great thing. But from that point, he's never as powerful, maybe, or he feels he now has to constantly be working on his reputation from that point on. Mm. Um, so it's all mixed up with the tensions of the late Roman Republic and sort of there's only so many spots um, to rise to power in ancient Rome based on the governmental system. But when you have two huge figures like Caesar and Pompey with tons of money and clout, suddenly everything, there's this like bottleneck and that's what leads to sort of this eruption of the sort of civil war, which had been building for a hundred or so years at that point. So. Hmm. In your classes, do you, um, do you? I'm sure you study Cicero's writings in the classes you teach here. Or Actually, not because so no? um, sort of the the texts we use are kind of, especially in some classes, are based on like 
the AP curriculum, so we, we choose certain texts to build up to that. Uh, what I used to teach the course Latin four, and sometimes I would read some Cicero letters with the students there. So I actually haven't had, since coming to Gilman, the opportunity to teach Cicero that much, but I keep thinking about maybe ways I can fit him more in. He's notoriously kind of difficult for especially elementary school, uh, elementary level or beginning uh, intermediate readers because he has these long sentences mm -hmm. with tons of clauses. So you have to really pay attention to what's going on because you don't hit the main verb often until like five lines from the start of the sentence. So, um, so getting students to enjoy that, to like have the patience to wait for the, wait for the, the sentence to end, um, is something I still also need to work on to be able to teach that and really to share why this is great, why this is great Latin writing. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that I, I keep meaning to add that in and hopefully at some point I can figure out how to really um, incorporate Cicero more into my classes and my teaching. So, yeah, that would be awesome because yeah. it's a, a unique um, aspect of what you study that mm -hmm. you're really interested in. Yeah. What, what is it about Cicero that you personally admire the most or what, what do you think has attracted you to studying mm -hmm. him so much? I'm not sure if it's mostly admire, because like they always say, like, who would you want to eat dinner with? And yeah, I that, feel like Cicero actually would actually be really annoying to eat dinner with, because um, huge ego, huge ego, yeah, um, as yeah. So, but I I enjoy the letters in particular because you can really, and I in general I've always enjoyed sort of the idea of letters as both a literary form of writing and also mm -hmm. um, a construct because they seem so personal, but they are often clearly not. They're meant to be, they're conveying something else that is being meant to be shared. Um, so I liked Cicero because he just offers such a wealth of knowledge into that time period, but you can also feel closer to him um, through his letters. Like you really see him as a person, Mm -hmm. uh, both the flaws and the positives, because you you see the flaws when you read the letters. Um, so interesting, yeah. So even though he knew people were going to be reading his letters, mm -hmm. he wasn't he wasn't shy about putting you know being more human in them and showing his flaws. Yeah, and some of the letters maybe were not as meant to be widely shared. They are more personal, but they're put into this collection um, mm -hmm. with the rest of them. So like we see these letters to his wife that he eventually divorces, and it's funny if you trace the, the letters to his wife over the time period, they get shorter and shorter as the divorce is approaching. Um, so that's kind of... Was divorce common in that day? Yes, especially in the upper classes because um, marriage was used as political alliance tools. Oh. Uh, so famously... Um, I can't believe I'm blanking on the names, but... Someone divorced their wife, so the wife could marry their sort of political rival so they could have um, a connection, an alliance. Oh, wow. And then when the other person died, the wife then came back to the first husband. Crazy. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, this is... Mm -hmm. I think I need to sit in on one of your classes because, again, <laughs> I, I do not... Know, the timeline is totally foreign to me. You know, it's it's... Uh, something that I would need to take a class on, but Cicero is an interesting figure for sure and mm -hmm. complicated, but... Um. Yeah, because we always, like even just in general history, you always focus in on Caesar and Pompey and Mark Antony and Octavian and the rise of the Roman Empire, but Cicero is always there and he's our major source for that time period too, mm -hmm. so... 
So in your journey uh, through the classics and, and through undergrad and your graduate degree, how did you find Gilman or how did you get to Baltimore? Because I know you're from Buffalo. Yeah, I'm from outside of Buffalo, New York. So I was at UVA and then I was, I was knowing I was not going to finish my dissertation. Um, I was ABD at that point, so all but dissertation. Um, and I knew I wanted to transition into teaching in the independent school at that point. Um, so I applied, the, that, sort of my funding was running out, so I was like, I need to make that transition now. So um, I just started looking for independent school jobs, and then that year Gilman was posting, but I wasn't quite sure if I really wanted to teach in an all-boys school, not really understanding Gilman's situation with Bryn Mawr and RPCS. Uh, so I didn't originally like send out an application to Gilman, but at that time, one of the former teachers, Dan Houston, um, I was on Carney Sando, the sort of search, um, the private school search sort of, I don't know, company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Dan Houston just emailed me cold saying like, we, we've seen your resume, would you be interested in talking about Gilman School? I was like, okay. Um, I wasn't having much luck at that point, um, finding a position in sort of areas where I would like to live. Um, so Dan and I had a conversation and it was clear like, oh, this be a perfect fit for like the way I teach Latin, understanding better about sort of the scope of the class, like actually having a classics department in an independent school and a high school is just remarkable. Usually the Latin teacher is just part of the modern language department at most uh, schools. So that conversation with, with Dan was great. So then I sort of officially applied and then my interview was two days after the Freddie Gray riots. Oh, wow. Uh, so a lot of my interview day was spent um, with people convincing me, Baltimore's not usually on fire. We have our problems. But yeah. um, but that didn't deter me because when I got into campus, like even though everyone was sort of recovering and sort of understanding what had just happened, um, there were things like touring the campus, like, Toby took me around, and I remember I met Cheryl Nakeva, who was really fun and immediately kind of like... Great energy. Great energy, yeah, and sort of just sort of being here on campus immediately kind of like, ah, uh, this is this is a place to be, so. So do you teach um, female students from Bryn Mawr and RPCS too? Are all your classes have the tri-school uh, model in them? Basically, all of my classes are tri-school or co-ed or tri-school, uh, yep. depending. Um, I think this is my sixth year at Gilman. I've only had two classes, and they were both in my first year that were f- all boys. Mm-hmm. Basically, every single class is always co-ed. Um, okay. Especially because uh, the underclassmen, the ninth and 10th graders, in particular from RPCS, but now also from Brimar, are coming over to Gilman for Latin or Greek. Um, they're not Whereas most of the students at Gilman, they don't experience to try school until they're juniors. Mm-hmm. Um, but with classics is when we can get we get them younger. Um, so I often have ninth graders or tenth graders from all three schools in my classes. So, so where do you begin? Maybe in that um, that Roman class, right, or, or the first class that you take, beginners Latin, right? Mm-hmm. Where where do you start? the year off with these freshman students who maybe are just interested in the class and are jumping in there? What what do you begin your curriculum with? Mm-hmm. Just the basics, like how to pronounce so classical Latin, you pronounce, even though all the letters and the words even look like English, you pronounce it a little differently. Um, and it's even different like if you're Christian and you sing like Latin 
songs or carols in church or you have heard like a Catholic sermon in, in Latin, their pronunciation, pronunciation is different than sort of this more classical quote-unquote um, Latin we want to teach. So we just start with the basics and then start from there because Latin's an inflected language. So as we say, English word order doesn't matter. Um, you could have the verb at the start of a sentence. You could have the verb at the middle of the sentence. The mm -hmm. words change whether they're a subject or object based on the ending of the word. Um, so just getting them out of the sort of habits of either Eng English or even Spanish or the other languages they may know that it's an inflected language. So you really have to pay attention um, to the endings of the words because word order will not necessarily help you. Um, mm, you can't guarantee. That's tough. Yeah, you can't guarantee like the first word in your sentence will be a subject, although oftentimes it will. You can't guarantee that. Is um, it just random or just doesn't matter? Like the writers of Latin, they, they can just arbitrarily put a word in wherever? or Kind of, but we say like Latin doesn't have English word order, but there is Latin word, word okay. order. There is patterns to what the Latin authors are writing. Um, those patterns can go out the window when we go to Latin poetry where the word order is often dictated by the meter of the poem. So you have more jumbled of sort of placement of words, but there's still some patterns that emerge that you can understand, oh, if I'm seeing this, I should expect this. And so just teaching those new ways of looking at sentences and words. So that's what I'm kind of most enjoyed about learning Latin and what I try hopefully to impart on students is sort of really slowing down and looking at what you're actually reading and really thinking about what you're reading word by word. Um, the words matter, and here in particular, the, the endings matter, um, mm -hmm. but just slowing down, whereas so much in our modern society is like sped up or like everything is quick now mm -hmm. or instant. Skim, skim reading. Yeah, skim reading or instant. And you can get to a point where you can skim read Latin and as well um, when you know it enough, but just initially just slowing down is just a good thing in life. Like you don't always want to be on the go. You want to slow down at points too. So. For sure. And that will help them with their English or whatever language that they're taking. But yeah. as an English teacher, like yeah. we slow down our reading too. I've, I've gotten to the point where I'd rather assign fewer pages of mm -hmm. reading so they actually really engage with it and pay attention because there's so many subtleties yeah. that you might miss mm -hmm. if you're just trying to get those, you know, 30 pages done. Right. Yeah, like, why did this author choose this word? Um, mm -hmm. And particularly in, like, Latin poetry, why did they place this word there? Um, and why is it important that it's surrounding this other word? Like, that all matters, especially in Latin poetry, like, word placement, mm -hmm. as it can affect, actually, the meaning and sort of imitate the meaning of the actual words. So, Who are some of the Latin poets that you discuss and study in your class? So uh, I teach three honors, so our major author is Ovid, um, who's writing under Augustus, um, the first emperor of Rome, and he's famous for his metamorphoses because it's a bunch of myths that have been strung together, so a lot of um, myth stories. Some, Ovid is a source for some of those, um, in particular like Pyramus and Thisbe, um, which is sort of the a form of like Romeo and Juliet that Shakespeare is definitely looking to that earlier story when he's composing uh, Romeo and Juliet. So sort of those stories which come out um, later in later authors. So why did that? So I haven't studied that too much. I know we we did read it in a class I took in college, but why did Metamorphoses um, stick around for so long? Why is it such a powerful work? 
I think because it's a bunch of various different stories and the imagery is great that a lot of first artists have taken up mm -hmm. the metamorphoses and also poets have reread the metamorphoses, especially and approached it in different ways. Like there's a lot of um, feminist readings of the myths because a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of Greek and Roman mythology involves rape um, and sort of you can't gloss over that mm -hmm. um, as the sort of subject of the myth. So there's been very interesting artistic representation in modern day poetry approaches and re sort of readings of these myths and t giving agency and voice to the female um, sort of uh, uh, actors in the story. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So I think it's just that the imagery is such that artists immediately want to sort of try to recreate the story and then other authors want to reread and want to sort of rework based on those stories. Got it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so in your experience here at Gilman, what do you most enjoy about teaching classics and Latin to not only the Gilman boys, but also to the students in the tri-school area? What have you really found has been fulfilling about this experience now that you're, you know, you're a teacher and you've decided on this profession? What, what do you like most about it? I think it's still like what I said earlier when suddenly the light bulb goes off on the student. It's still that. And Everyone always says like Latin's so hard, and, and it can be, but it shouldn't prevent people from trying it because it, it doesn't need to be any harder than any other language or any other new subject you're taking. Uh, but just seeing those connections or when they make the connections like um, some years we read the story of Pygmalion in Latin and Ovid and they make the connection with when they read um, uh, Frankenstein in English, like mm -hmm. making those connections cross subject, cross disciplines has always been also kind of wonderful to see um, how it can influence their studies in other subject areas as well. Yeah, that's one thing that I've always known about Latin. I, I, I never took it in high school, but I always knew that as a person who loved English, like Latin could really help my like root words and understanding the English language better. Yeah, for sure. And that's maybe one of the reasons a lot of students might take Latin initially. Yeah, it's true because like over 50% of probably most English words are derived from Latin to a certain extent. So um, it does help with vocab. And I think that initially is what compels a lot of students to take it. Um, they also do understand like it's connected with Spanish and French um, as the other Romance languages. So they can find connections there to help with vocabulary and things like that. Um, so there is that. Um, but then there's also maybe um, notoriously the way we teach Latin, we don't speak it as much. So often, sometimes students will choose Latin because they don't need to converse as much in Latin. Although you can teach Latin very effectively through like spoken Latin, um, and some, that is something I would like to improve upon. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely, there is also that kind of area where I don't need to converse as much, and I can really be slower and work through it, mm -hmm. um, and that can help too to choose Latin. If you were going to teach one Latin poem or um prose in one of your classes what what would you select what is your favorite mm. to teach the students uh, that's tricky metamorphoses maybe? it's what the metamorphoses is the text i've taught the most both in college and here at gilman mm -hmm. it's so it's, i'm very comfortable with the stories and teaching it and sort of talking about ovid and getting them to understand how he's writing why he's writing and 
um, why it's not just myth stories strung together. There's a lot going on under, underneath the surface. Um, so I enjoy teaching Ovid. Um, there is probably, oh, I also enjoy t teaching Catullus, um, who's a Roman poet. He's probably my favorite of the Roman poets to read. He's also writing in the late Republic. He's earlier than Ovid. He's writing short, shorter poems. Um, some are also politically connected. Um, he makes famous, he makes fun of Caesar in one of them. Um, but they're also sort of love poetry as well, and they can get also pretty racy. So there's some of the poems which we may not necessarily teach at the high school level, but we definitely teach at the college level. Um, so he's my favorite poet to read. So I have been able to teach him a couple times, but yeah, I always enjoy Catullus. Yeah, you're at an interesting crossroads mm -hmm. because you not only have to communicate and teach the language mm -hmm. part, but also the writing style, the figure, the history, like you have a lot of different uh, elements to your curriculum that you kind of have to impart and walk the students through. Yeah, and I don't think that necessarily is very different from like an English teacher where like True. when you're reading a new author in English, you want some context maybe to the story or if it's set in a historical period, you need to provide some sort of context for the students. So, it, so it's very similar to that. But yeah, there's a lot. It's not just teaching a language. If you want to really enjoy the literature, you have to understand the context of the author, why they're writing, um, who they're talking about, and why is it important. So, mm. Mm -hmm. so you do have Silk Roads. You brought mm -hmm. in Silk Roads today. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about this because this is a title that you know, I've seen all over the place. I have the new Silk Roads mm -hmm. book by the same author, but I've never read this one. Um, why did you select this one to bring in as your book recommendation? So I knew we were going to be talking about Latin and sort of classics a lot, but it's also sort of limits sort of my knowledge. And this is kind of a, a feature of, to a certain extent, like modern education, especially in America, we get so focused on this terrible kind of, thinking of like Greece to Rome to Western Europe to the U.S. as a direct line of heritage, which is not true and is a very um, problematic way to look at history or look at the past or the foundation of America. Um, so m me myself is like I need to also better educate myself about sort of the larger history. Um, that's in particular, that's why I so enjoyed my year in Greece because we got exposed to the full history of Greece from like prehistory to modern and that includes really understanding more about the interaction with the the east mm -hmm. um, with Asia and Turkey but going beyond that to India and whatnot um, and the whole Mediterranean looking at North Africa and Egypt and everything so just sort of broadening out my sort of narrow scope of like certain 2,000 years which I of maybe history that I know pretty well but moving it into areas where I don't know so I like this book because it starts with something that I do know, like with Greece and Alexander the Great, but then it immediately moves into the India and sort of all the like stands, Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan, and sort of understanding better about the importance of what's called like the Byzantine, like what happens after Constantine sort of chooses Christianity from Rome and then moves the seat to Constantinople or Istanbul. And usually that's where when you're studying Greece and Rome, that's usually where your history stops. Um, but then there's so much more history before we get to like the Middle Ages where usually European history picks up. But we forget about the sort of flourishing of the Persian Empire and this 
point and sort of the power that is happening, struggles that are happening um, in the in the East that are really crucial to actually the Byzantine Empire and the Ottoman Empire and really understanding sort of that area more is sort of a hole in my knowledge that I really want to sort of build. Yeah. I mean, you're expanding the holes in your knowledge and yet yeah. you have all the, the, you know, the underpinnings of the ancient world pretty much, you know, you've, you've learned all those, you've, mm-hmm. you've studied that part. And, and when you were coming on the episode, I was, I was looking Mm -hmm. into really what we were talking about today and just thinking there's so much about the ancient world that I don't know and I haven't studied Mm -hmm. and I haven't spent time on, um, you know, and that we take kind of for granted in our modern world. And we don't even think about like where does our language come from and roads and Mm -hmm. like who, you know, who came up with all of these things that we use and, you know, to our advantage today in our waking life today. Yeah, and just like... Even the things you do know, like Homer isn't really Greek. He's so he has so much more connections to stuff in the East um, as an influence, like the Near East, that we forget that everything is not just a, a silo. Like it, there's just, especially in the ancient world, everything is influencing each other so much that it sometimes seems unmanageable how much you would need to learn to really understand history and understand how. Um, things get passed down, but that's, I think that's a good thing that you are constantly learning, constantly reading and expanding your knowledge and finding new connections between, between things you already know. So. Yeah, it's less, mm-hmm. it's less linear than it is kind of yeah. just a, an expanding web. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, everything's influencing each other, and mm-hmm. these strings are pulling these strings too. And that's something that I was learning more about with ancient Rome and how when they expanded the emperor, mm-hmm. they were just adopting the new territories and the inventions and the ideas that they were Mm -hmm. conquering. Yeah, it's that tension between, yeah, appropriation, but also um, uh, sort of adoption and Mm -hmm. sort of really understanding and really taking on those new values or new customs as well. So, Well, Sarah, thank you very much Mm -hmm. for coming on today. It was a great start to... um, our conversation on this topic and yeah. what you teach here and I'd love to continue this and have you on maybe again once wow. I once I learn a little bit more and can have some more talking points about the ancient world but um, fascinated with the subjects you teach and uh, definitely that book that you brought in too yeah thank you I enjoyed speaking with you so. awesome thank you mm-hmm.